1: People living in the modern West generally have no problem criticizing religiously justified violence. It's therefore always interesting when I discuss John Brown a man who legitimized anti-slavery violence biblically. My most recent batch of students sought to resolve this tension by declaring John Brown to be crazy, but right. In his Weird John Brown, Divine Violence and the Limits of Ethics, published by Stanford University Press, Dr. Ted A. Smith unravels the tensions that led to my students' ambiguous conclusion. By providing a profound ethical meditation on Brown and his fellow raiders to challenge how people particularly Americans, think about morality, the relationship between religion, the state, and violence, and to the possibilities of judgment and redemption, Smith illustrates how an ethical and philosophical reading of history can help us better understand the world we live in, what we should do, and of the importance of going beyond just what we ought to do. I hope you'll enjoy the interview and have a look, closer look at Dr. Smith's book. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rauch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Ted Smith about his new book, Weird John Brown, Divine Violence in the Limits of of Ethics, which has been published by Stanford University Press. Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. We're very glad to have you, and I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, sure. Right now, I teach at Emory University's Candler School of Theology, and my appointment is in both preaching and ethics. So I teach uh, broadly in what I would think of at the intersections of practical and political theology. Uh, And Emory is a great place to do that uh, because of the role of religion on campus and because of uh, the depth of connections, especially for me, with the law school uh, and the Center for the Study of Law and Religion.
1: It, could you tell me where did you study for your, um, you know, your undergraduate, your graduate? And so yeah, forth? sure. I,
0: I did my undergraduate work at at Duke. I I went there for their little summer program, and um, when I was in junior high, and that's the only place I ever wanted to go. And it was it was a great place for me. I was a double major in religion and public policy, and I did a lot of classes over in the you know theory heavy world of the English department, uh, and it was a great kind of introduction into those worlds I think uh, the strong influences there were uh, Stanley Harwas and Stanley Fish both uh, had formative power for me at that stage Uh, from there I went to Oxford uh, on a Rhodes and at Oxford uh, I studied philosophy and theology Uh, Galen Strawson the moral philosopher was my uh, was my primary teacher And that was more on the philosophy side. On the theology side, Rowan Williams, of course, was uh, extremely important, uh, both as for what he thought and then just uh, for how he thought and how he put all these pieces together. Um, And then after that, I was at Princeton Seminary uh, and worked both in the seminary and then had the good fortune to take some classes across the street in the university and and there, Cornell West and and Jeff Stout were enormously influential and I took all of that into the parish. I was a pastor for four years uh, in upstate New York after that. And um, I think, you know, I went up there wanting with a little bit of Hauerwas in me and a little bit of stout and wanting to form a radically democratic, countercultural Christian community. Uh, and in the course of realizing uh, why that, uh, why that wasn't going to happen, both in and in spite of my best efforts and the best efforts of a couple of wonderful congregations. And then in seeing, uh, trying to make theological sense of that, I think that that's a lot of what led me back to graduate school. And I, I came here to Emory and did graduate work here. After, after I finished up, uh, I worked especially with Mark Jordan uh, and with Brooks Holyfield, the American religious historian. And then... I uh, was at Vanderbilt for seven, eight years, and then came back to came back to Emory. So, a lot of wandering around.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds so like you you gained a lot through your wandering. I mean, that's that's quite a, a pedigree and quite a lot of interesting experiences.
0: Yeah. Well, I, uh, I I am both thankful and a little embarrassed as I think about who my teachers have been. Um, thankful because it really has been a remarkable group of people, um, and and a little embarrassed because.
1: I should be doing a lot better work,
0: <laughs> given, <laughs> given, the, given the quality of my teachers.
1: Right. But, well, your work is very fascinating. Um, and I, before we get to, I just wanted to ask you one one last question, Sure. So how what drew you then both to being um, to the pastorate and to the study of religion? Because those, in, in many ways, are connected but rather different things.
0: Yeah, I I think it it's one of many ways. I feel a little bit born out of time. Um, you yeah. know, I grew up in a small Small city in uh, southwest Missouri and the Ozarks I grew up in Springfield and it is in many ways you know for better and for worse uh, uh, a throwback kind of city and so for for me it was just always I, I the, the throwback piece of, of my own vocation is that it didn't used to be strange at all uh, for time in the parish and serious theological deliberation to go together that used to be the norm um, but it's really not anymore. The two have diverged, and there aren't very many of us of my generation who have who have tried to do both. My desire to do both really crystallized when I was at Duke take, as an undergrad taking a kind of survey of theological ethics, Christian theological ethics with Stanley Harawas, and I, I realized as I was reading that all the people I read, there just seemed to be some heft or depth to them. All of them had done some kind of time in the parish and it's especially it all crystallized reading uh reinhold neighbor's leaves from the notebook of the tame cynic his memoir of his pastoral days and i think that's a brilliant book i think it's one of the strongest things he wrote and i think it informs all the rest and so once i had that as kind of a, a lens to think back through other writers i admired well uh there it was so i doing parish ministry was um was an essential part uh, of really the way I thought about my vocation from a pretty early age.
1: Oh, that's, that's fascinating. It is good to have those things integrated. And I think that's a real strength of your book. um, We're John Brown. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how did you, you come to write this book?
0: Yeah, it, uh, it, it emerged over the course of, of several years. Um, And and I I think there are three strands that came together. The first of them is just being interested in John Brown. I mean, the the Brown story is fascinating on many levels. It's just a great story. He's a riveting character. Um, And then there are really powerful minds, powerful works of art that have engaged Brown. So you have great conversation partners uh, if you're thinking about Brown. But why he really got on my list is I, I'm part here in Atlanta and have been part for a long time of a multiracial congregation. And again and again, I, I heard African American, uh, friends and, you know, fellow congregation members say, well, my grandma said or uh, my great aunt said, the, you know, the only white man you could ever trust was John Brown. And the first time you hear that, you, it's notable. But after you've heard that, so something very close to that line, um, you know, a half dozen times. Well, then it, it, for me at least, it threw me into thinking about Brown with more urgency because I, I, I wanted to try to think as seriously as I could about what it means to be a white person and a white man in particular in the, in a nation that is whose original sin is slavery and that is still so deeply uh, steeped in that. As we see, you know, even even last week. So one one piece came out of interest in in trying to think about how to live as a white person in this country and thinking about John Brown. Another piece came from much more ac- academic sort of interest. I've been reading uh, Walter Benjamin for years. He's really important in my first book, um, and his essay on the critique of violence it it just mystified me. Um, it attracted me. I knew there were depths there, uh, but I also knew I just, I just couldn't make sense of it. So I wanted to give a, a long time to thinking about that essay. Uh, and of course John Brown and that essay, they just, they just are drawn to one another. So the book was starting to come together then. And I think the third, the third wellspring of this book for me is a concern with the ways that I, I see ethics and here I mean ethics in the sense of universalizable norms for action within an imminent frame of cause and effects, the way I'm using the, that phrase ethics throughout the book. But the ways in which ethics have come to just subsume, it feels like every other form of discourse, especially uh, among the liberal Protestant tradition that is that is home for me. Um, you know, I think there there are many signs I could point to of this, but one of the surest ones is that I think uh, you know what a tradition is really about by what it's willing to split over, what it's willing to fight over. And in the 19th century in the United States, you could get up big fights between Presbyterians and Methodists, say, over the order of salvation or the role of free will versus election. You really can't get much of a fight on that anymore. Questions settled on the ground. I mean, you can get theologians to argue about it. But but ethical questions, um, and especially around sexuality, uh they they absolutely uh, you know you, you see traditions willing to willing to divide themselves over these so it's it's that worry that ethi- of ethics as everything and a sense of what's lost when when that becomes the case so i wanted to i wanted to explore it and and initially actually this book started as a chapter in a larger book that was about the limits of ethics for thinking about different kinds of questions and i wanted to show the uh poverty of ethics for thinking about uh, aesthetics and for erotics and then for you know the kind of displacement of, er- of theological erotics by sexual ethics and the and for violence. Um but I started with a violence chapter because I was interested in Brown and and then I just it just started going the whole <laughs> book and I realized this wasn't a chapter. Uh this this was a book.
1: So excellent. So um why is it uh, moving on kind of into your, into your introduction why is john brown weird yeah
0: well um i borrow the phrase from melville who uh herman melville who I, I count as one of america's greatest theologians and certainly our greatest uh interpreter of the civil war um you know the the contemporary depictions of brown uh, were starkly divided, and he was either this demon, uh, as he was portrayed by copperheads in the north and and most southerners. Um, he was either a demon or or he was you know he was Christ among us he was the embodiment of all things that are good here you know uh, in emerson 's language he, he makes the gallows glorious as the cross um, and melville and and i think I think he 's seen in those ways because uh, people are thinking about him ethically. And they're thinking he's either the embodiment of their ethics or he's the refutation of their ethics. And, wh- and what Melville does is to call him not not good, not bad, but weird. So that's the line he, he uses, weird John Brown. And what Melville means by weird is um, like what Shakespeare meant by weird uh, with the weird sisters in Macbeth. It's an archaic usage and he means something that's, in this world, but not merely of this world. Uh, so for for Melville, and you can't even say Melville has an ethical ambivalence. He's not saying Brown's kind of good and kind of bad. He's really thinking about Brown on a level other than ethics, and he's saying this weird John Brown. He he's not he's not good. He's not bad. He's a sign, a sign of judgment, um, and a judgment especially on this country's long collusion with slavery, a judgment of the law. Um, in Melville's poem, it's not just Brown who hangs from the gallows, it's the law itself uh, that is hanged on that day uh, through the, the way Brown reveals its injustice. So I wanted to pick up that sense of weird, uh, and that's that's the way I want to think about Brown too, uh, more Morgan, not it not just in the realm of ethics. Was he right? Was he wrong? Should he have done the Harper's Ferry raid? Is Harper's Ferry okay, but Kansas isn't? I I wanted to get out of the moral reasoning about Brown and kind of restore
1: thinking about him to a a properly theological register. Excellent. And that's connected to this whole idea of divine violence?
0: Yeah, the um, divine violence language in the the subtitle, it's that that's coming straight out of Benjamin's essay on critique of violence and, um, Benjamin talks about mythological violence, which I I think is this violence that is in the world of, uh, ethical reasoning about actions within, uh, imminent frames of cause and effect. That's, that tends to slip into what Benjamin means by mythological violence, but, and by divine violence, though, he means, uh, he means an an act or an event or a moment or a condition, really, that shatters uh, the claims of the law. It doesn't create the law. It's not continuous with the law, but it breaks the hold of the law on our imaginations. Um, and so to see Brown in in Benjamin's language as a as a great criminal, not not one who is right necessarily, still one who breaks the law. But one who breaks the law in a way that reveals the the limits of the law.
1: Excellent. And one thing that I've, just occurred to me because we do have listeners from a wide variety of backgrounds, could you give us just a two minute synopsis of who John Brown is?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Brown. we asked that earlier. I apologize.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's all right. that's all right. Um, John Brown is he's born in 1800, and he's in many ways. Uh, you know, He was regarded by his contemporaries as the, the last Puritan. Uh, he still kind of holds on to this, at least in his image, they see him as like Cromwell among us. Um, but he was many things. He traveled across, uh, he was part of that migration in his family from New England to Ohio, um, and it, he was a failed wool merchant. Uh, he was a lay leader in congregations, um, but at, at some point, uh, And he became, you know, ardently opposed to slavery and dedicated his life to its eradication. So when the violence in Kansas erupted, uh, he and his sons went there and he directed the midnight massacre of some pro-slavery settlers. So he was notorious in Kansas, but um, he could still travel freely across the north and he was a real celebrity in many ways. Uh, and certainly had access to all kinds of folks. Um, and then he eventually led a raid on Harper's Ferry, on the federal arsenal there, and um, the raid failed miserably, and um, he and the, gang, the band of white and black raiders who joined him in that raid were, all, were almost all captured and almost all killed. So... But the raid, you know, it's disputed what the raid was about, uh, but one, I think, I think the most sensible reading is that they wanted to, um, seize weapons and then follow the strategy that had worked in Haiti and retreat to the, retreat to the mountains and invite slaves to, enslaved people to kind of break away from their, from the places where they were enslaved, come up to the mountains, and they could wage guerrilla war from there. Um, but the the plan to get out of the ferry never really worked, and it seems at some point um, Brown stopped caring if it worked in that conventional sense. So he was
1: hanged uh, as a traitor and a murderer. This is I think, is this 1859 when he's done? Yeah. So it's, yeah, and it really leads into the Civil War. Yeah, that's right, and that that's that's the way Melville sees him as the as
0: the, the title of Melville's poem is the portent. He's uh, he's that which foretells the war. He's the meteor of war, Melville says. And I think um, Brown's execution does a lot to harden opinion in both the North and the South um, against each other, and, and to create that sense as as they listen to each other talk about Brown, that sense that no, we we really are fundamentally different on these questions.
1: And I that seems like a good place to segue then into chapter 1 uh where you describe John Brown uh as a touchstone. W- what do you mean by that? Yeah, I I call Brown a
0: touchstone because of the way it seems like in in every generation um you see Americans returning to him to work out their problems, work out the pressing issues of the day. So this happened in uh immediately upon his upon his death. It's happened uh, in the deliberation about the Civil War it happened um, even after the civil war uh, as and in reconstruction period as people are thinking about what that what that work is what needs to happen what's the moral justification for it it happened goes right on through uh, though into the twentieth century so you, you Eugene b Debs calls for a John Brown of wage slavery um, appeals to him there uh, the NAACP is founded uh, the the Niagara movement founded at um, at Harper's Ferry with deliberate invocations of John Brown and reverdy ransom gives a great sermon uh, the spirit of John Brown that invokes him for the challenges of resisting Jim Crow County Cullen Langston Hughes take him up Um, but then you know it just it just rolls the use of Brown rolls right on you know on the other side for those who want to support Jim Crow uh he brown is depicted as this kind of fanatical madman he's exactly what you what you have to worry about this is why we have to retain order um, and then it, the you know depictions of brown carry right on through he's evoked against cold war fanaticism on both sides and um, evoked again in the civil rights struggle both positively and negatively malcolm x um calls him to mind and a critique of tepid white liberals everywhere and then you know in our own time he's we we go back to him yet again especially uh, people have gone back to him thinking about terrorism since 9-11 um, and he's evoked on all sides of these discussions too evoked as um, the kind of thing that we have to we have to guard against here's a fusion of religion and violence. But for somebody like Timothy mcVeigh, he's called upon as as an example um and Timothy McVeigh wants to be seen like a a John Brown of the people who are oppressed by the government and then you know most recently cornell West uh tweeted out that Edward Snowden is a John Brown in the in the n s a area so Brownie's just someone we think with he's somebody that we rub the nation against to see what we're about um In the book, I try to argue that's because uh, Brown is one of those characters that lets us figure, that lets us make visible, make conscious sovereignty in the United States and uh, sovereignty, both because we're a republic that is deeply ambivalent about sovereignty and sovereignty because it is diffuse to the people. It's enormously difficult for us to think about in the U.S. Um, But Brown is one of the figures through which we do that.
1: Well, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that—that that what you mean here, because I, I thought it was interesting you said the arguments about John Brown are arguments about sovereignty. So I'm curious what you mean by that term and why it's difficult for Americans to to think in terms of sovereignty. Yeah. Well, I, what
0: I what I mean by that term is is something like the I, I'm not I'm not offering a novel de- uh, definition of that. I'm meaning to pull the definition that's in wide circulation uh out and then I want to argue with it. But it but it really is it's not only about um this, this sovereignty is not only about a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence for political ends, but it 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 it's above all about a legit the the legitimate quality of that monopoly. So there's a moral dimension to this sovereignty that says it's not it's not just um it's not just a hegemony that can assert its will everywhere but it's got a moral quality to it we it's a sense that that this this kind of power is right um so how that sovereignty gets invested in the nation state is a is a really critical question for our time um and I, as i said before i think it's it's difficult um and 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 then what alternatives there are if the nation state should have a monopoly on that kind of sovereignty um and what What alternate sovereignties emerge, and it's an especially acute question, I think, for people with religious convictions who have to uh, negotiate some kind of ultimate loyalty or allegiance um, that is not equal to, or not not uh, immediately and simply identical to, any earthly sovereign. Oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, no, oh, I, uh, and I had said before, I think there's reasons why it's really hard for us to think about sovereignty in the United States. It's because we, you know, uh, in some modes, we officially don't have it <laughs> at all. Uh, that's what Hannah Arendt says is, you know, one of our great achievements. But uh, uh, when we do talk about it, we talk about the sovereignty of the people, of popular sovereignty. But where, where do you look to see that um, in action? How do you appeal to that? Um, so, you know, Brown, is often made a a representative American. Thoreau calls him the most American of us all. And so he becomes this representation of the
1: people exercising its sovereignty. And, oh, excellent, excellent. One thing also, just so we can kind of hit again on on one of your main themes, because the whole idea is that you're saying there's limits to ethics. And you talk about this idea of how he's treated. I mean, this is one of the subheadings. It's, you're trying to get beyond this debate is he freedom fighter or fanatic yeah. and uh coming from someone who's focused a lot on confucianism <laughs> and Catholicism, you know it it's hard for me to get beyond this idea of labeling actions and judging actions so i'm curious if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about what you mean by getting beyond these categories sure let me let me take let me take one quick step back to kind of, sure. uh, that i think can frame the freedom fighter
0: versus fanatic piece and then i'll i'll answer that question directly but you know the the main the main argument of the book I think or the, or the function of the book or the work of it is to perform a critique of a of a constellation that's composed by a mode of reasoning uh, and an arrangement of power and that mode of reasoning is deliberation about violence that's confined uh, within a, at least potentially universalizable norms whether those are rules or consequences virtues whatever. And then the arrangement of power is uh, the state's monopoly on legitimate violence for political ends. And when we usually think about violence, it, these two things come together, this mode of reasoning and this arrangement of power. And I want to argue that what, what that does is it mystifies the state's monopoly on violence um, in, that, in ways that mean we can't even really defend it. Um, we can't argue for it. We can't, we can't even really think about it. It just becomes the, the kind of brute given, the, the frame in which all other uh, all our other reasoning takes place. And so, so one sign of this, I think, is the way in which uh, what, what goes by religious ethics, or Christian ethics, Jewish ethics, theological ethics, whatever, it, it too often presumes uh, this monopoly by the state on violence and the legitimacy of that. And that's presumed when, you know, what, what this discipline or this discourse becomes is a kind of giving of religious reasons for policies that will be enacted by the state. And that's an awful lot of what happens uh, under the name of social ethics or religious ethics, this giving of religious reasons for state policies. But it's not getting at a more basic questioning of uh, the mode of reasoning uh, or, or of that, of the state's Legitimate monopoly—the legitimacy of the state's monopoly on violence—and I want to say that it's the mode of reasoning that 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 taking of ethics for all and all—it's not a logical necessity that it fits with the uh, occlusion of the state's monopoly on violence, but they just fit together and they arose together historically, and that's what I want to critique, and I especially want to critique it uh, in the wake of the expansion of the security state after 9/11 and I especially want to critique it uh, after, uh, after Ferguson, after Charleston, after this wave of events that remind us of the deep alliance between the law and slavery and the legacies of slavery uh, in the United States. These are, these are reasons why the state's monopoly on legitimate violence needs to be uh, a subject for critical deliberation, again, instead of the frame in which all our deliberation unfolds. So, with that said, and I'm sorry for the long kind of preface there. Uh part one of the first arguments of the book is that you can see the power of this framework of reasoning uh in the ways that John Brown is usually thought of. The the arguments about Brown uh tend to cluster into calling him either a freedom fighter or or a fanatic. And what I want to argue is that the, these these positions seem completely opposed to one another. He's either you know a freedom fighter working for a just cause and uh, to be celebrated, or he's a fanatic. He, this is this is what uh, religion run amok looks like.
1: Um,
0: but but actually they share a lot. They share a sense that you can evaluate him ethically within the frames of that, that I've been talking about by with reference to universalizable principles and an imminent frame of cause and effect. And they also assume that this. Uh, the state's monopoly on legitimate use of violence for political ends. And he, he, here, here's how. Um, Brown is a fanatic to those who see him as a fanatic exactly because he appeals to reasons, uh, to justify his violence that can't really be contained within anything like what we call ethics. Um, you know, Brown's not, he, he makes ethical arguments, but he's just as likely to say, you know, what really needs to happen here is a blood atonement for sin. <laughs> for national sin, and I'm going to offer my blood as part of that. Well, th- that's not really um, something that you can put into a, a universalizable ethic, right? It's not going to fit that mold. Um, so that that marks him as a fanatic, and it marks him as a fanatic that he's a non-state actor who takes up violence. So, but, so you'd think the freedom fighters might escape that, the people who see him as a freedom fighter. But when you look at the details of the argument of most defenses of Brown. What they argue, first of all, is that he's right in some way, and he's right in a way that, you know, anyone in a similar situation um, should should do the same thing. So they, they appeal to universalizable principles to argue for him, but also they wrap him in the legitimacy of the state. So uh, Brown himself engaged in some of this. I mean, his arguments for his own actions were all over the place, but, but he absolutely wanted to claim that he was an heir of... Uh, the violence at Lexington and Concord. Um, he's an heir to that revolutionary violence, and people like Thoreau, Frederick Douglass, they they inscribe him in this story too. They see him as uh, you know, Bunker Hill and Harper's Ferry are they're just two moments in that same deliberation. So they they make it they they put they, they put him after and as an heir to in the line of succession with the violence of the Revolutionary War that founded the nation. And then, as people think about the violence that comes after him, Brown's also integrated in that. So you see someone like the great social gospel preacher, Reverdy Ransom, who says, you know, we need to carry on John Brown's work through constitutional amendments. Uh, The Union Army carries on the work of John Brown. Um, And then as it gets picked up by uh, somebody like contemporary historian David Reynolds, look, the Civil Rights Movement and the 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 legislation that was passed, the Federal Troops and Little Rock, these are all extensions of John Brown. So for those who see him as a freedom fighter, uh they defend him not only in the language of ethics, but then they defend him by saying his violence is continuous with a larger sweep of state violence. So both of these sides, they share uh, these two convictions, these two almost always unarticulated convictions that action should be evaluated by these standards of ethics and that the source of legitimacy for any violence is, uh, is the state. Um, and if you think about it like that, then Brown is going to be a freedom fighter or a fanatic. And what I'm wanting to say is, uh, he's neither one and it's better to see him as
1: weird. Excellent. okay yeah no that's a great explanation thank you so um, having said that then that that kind of moves us then to chapter two where you're talking about this issue again you're talking about issues of sovereignty and the law and connecting the current our, our current American government with John Brown so I wonder if you could kind of walk a, a little bit through how, how you do that in chapter two yeah thanks for asking I, uh, chapter two is a, is a, it's kind of an odd chapter in
0: the book frankly um, but I wanted to include it Because it gives a lot of the, to me, a lot of the urgency around the book. Um, It it opens up with an argument with Mark Lilla. And uh, Lilla's uh, argument against um, political theology is is, uh, validation of what he sees as the great separation between theology and politics achieved in the West. And what I want to argue is that modern states, in excluding Any talk of divine violence, any talk of um, violence that uh, exceeds both the agency of the state and the reasoning of ethics, when they exclude any talk of that, they occlude their own mythologies, and they end up legitimating their own brands of uh, mythological violence. Um, And I want to argue especially that language of the rule of law becomes uh, a kind of fetish by which this action happens. So, uh, for instance, one place you can see this, I think, uh, is in the transition from the administration of George W. Bush to Barack Obama. Uh, Bush was a lot more comfortable, and, and here I, I don't hear me at all as endorsing uh, what Bush was up to. Uh, be vigorously opposed, but af- after 9/11. He enacted a series of emergency measures, and his theory of the executive, his account of uh, the emergency in which we were in, led him to take a number of actions that he were, you know, of dubious legality, but that he framed as exceptions to the law, exceptions to the rule of law for this temporary emergency. It was kind of a, a governing philosophy. Well, when uh, the Obama administration comes in, they are emphatic that what they want to do um, is to restore the rule of law and make sure that uh, you know in all its actions, the government is, is following the law. But, but a repeated pattern that we see is that things that happened in the Bush administration, like drone strikes, like the detentions at Guantanamo, they don't really stop with the transition to the Obama administration. But what happens is they get, they get wrapped in law the so the 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 ideal of the rule of law is adhered to it is followed there aren't exceptions um it it's it's all within the state's account of itself and account of its own legitimacy but the but the practices continue and um you know so one of the terrible ironies is that it's not just that Guantanamo um isn't closed it's that or it's that Guantanamo. Uh, gets wrapped in law in the way that it becomes a precedent um, It establishes the legitimacy of this kind of practice going forward Um, and I I cite that as an example of the the ways in which these ideals that I mean who can be against the rule of law right we're we're for these things Um, but the ways in which uh, these the, the form of reasoning that's native to the state once it kind of blocks out any other challenge once it blocks any uh, kind of, in particular, appeal to divine violence. Well, then uh, you get these things that are perverse, even by um, even by the standards of the people who who would support the values that are there. It's the, here you can see the Frankfurt School roots of the project, right? It is a it is an imminent critique of liberalism by one still committed
1: to the project of liberalism. And so you you mentioned then having established that, how John Brown challenges all of this. Um, I think he wrote, uh, divine violence um, threatens the three family resemblances um, of sensibilities of modern political formations, some kind of differentiation between political and religious institutions, a monopoly for the state on legitimate use of violence, and the subordination of violence to the rule of law. These three features have evolved to complement one another and when John Brown attacked Harper's Ferry in obedience to a higher law, he attacked all three of them. Yeah, that's so I wonder if you could. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on. Oh, no. Uh, I think that that's
0: just right. Brown becomes. Um, he, he, he does the unthinkable. Right. He, he does what just can't make sense within this system of values. And so that's that's what gets him called a fanatic. Unless, of course, you think that ultimately he was right, and that ultimately his actions were taken up by the state, in which case you can pull him back in. So that's the, the freedom fight, freedom fighter versus fanatic kind of duality that we get stuck in if this is the only mode of reasoning that we have. So I'm trying to argue about how Brown should be a touchstone for our times. Um, he is a touchstone for our times. He's brought up again and again uh, in relation to the expansion of... Uh, Security apparatus uh, in the wake of nine eleven um, but i 'm trying to change the way in which he gets invoked and what he reveals about us
1: right in particular it sounds like if if I understand correctly you're you're challenging this whole idea of us saying well it 's okay because it 's the law but, but we're making laws that are problematic
0: yeah i i it i what i'd like to see uh, an argument here the, the the book makes an argument for a greater tolerance for um exception for even for executive prerogative and and I deliberately appeal to folks like Locke and Hamilton um, you know like kind of gold standard little liberal sources um, to make this case to, to say that it, it's, it's like the wild margin on the edge of a field or, or a pharmacon where you know a little dose of this that prevents the uh, the other from seeming ultimate a little dose of exception to prevent the rule of law from becoming mythological. Uh, this
1: this is this is necessary for a healthy liberal society. Well, and that shifts us nicely into your third chapter, which I think is a very interesting title: uh, "Divine Violence is the Relief of Law." Because um, you're talking about mythological violence. I wonder right. if you can tell us a little bit more about this. I mean, I know it's a very it's a very dense um, and very fruitful discussion. Uh, to have to just summarize very quickly, but I wonder if you tell us a little bit more about Carl Schmidt, Walter Benjamin, and this difference between divine violence and mythic violence.
0: Sure. Uh, Yeah, chapter three is the... That's where I do uh, the most kind of theoretical heavy lifting. It's it's the chapter in which I work out in theoretical terms, what I'm working out in other other kinds of languages in other parts of the book. Um, And I do it especially by exposition and then juxtaposition of, of Carl Schmitt and, and Walter Benjamin, uh, especially around the idea of exception. So, uh, you know, Carl Schmitt, I think, uh, especially coming out of Chapter 2, what, what I hope you leave, people leave Chapter 2 with is, um, is a desire for a critique of the ideology of the self-sufficiency of a juridical order. So Schmitt gives you that. Um, he's making this case for sovereignty famously, you know, the sovereign is the one who declares the exception but in a, in a nutshell, what I want to argue against Schmidt is that he, in the end, he locates sovereignty in this world um, and in very direct ways, he wants uh, the sovereign power to have some this worldly you know, empirical institutional embodiment um and you know, ultimately that becomes the Fuhrer uh for him, that one who can declare the exception. So uh you know, I think by any standard his thinking goes terribly, you know, catastrophically off the rails here. Um, for some it happens at the very idea of the introduction of the of the possibility of an exception. But I've just argued in Chapter 2 that I think if you don't have any notion of an exception to a standard of rule of law, then, then that rule of law is going to become ideological. It's going to become mythological and able to legitimate violence um, that is beyond critique. So I, I turn then to, to Benjamin and his notion that sovereignty uh, touches the world. You know, it is in contact with the world, but, but as negation. Um, the so for Benjamin, divine, the the embodiment of this exception or the, the the sovereign power that could declare the exception is never going to be identical with any earthly power or institution. Um, a line you know, a line from him that was a real touchstone for me was his argument that authentic divine power can manifest itself other than destructively only in the world to come, the world of fulfillment. So authentic divine power doesn't manifest itself directly in the way Schmidt thinks. But it, uh, other than destructively or only negatively, uh, that's the way it appears in, in our age. So I, I take that and I link that to his notion of divine violence. And I say that what, what divine violence is for Benjamin it is the manifestation of sovereignty in this age. And to have that, you have to have a kind of messianic reading of history, um, whether that's supplied by a Christian theology or a Jewish theology or a pretty secularized uh, Marxian kind of account of history. There are a lot of ways to make it go, um, but it is a, there's a messianic structure to this history. And the way in which the, you know, in Christian language, the reign of God enters our age is, is negatively and that negation uh, makes all the difference so I that's the juxtaposition of, of Schmidt and Benjamin and then I I want to defend Benjamin from uh, Gillian Rose who I, I take as one of his great readers and really one of the great thinkers of, of recent times and she sees Benjamin's thought ending in a kind of nihilism um, because he's because the negation can't generate anything and I want to argue, um, here I borrow a concept from Theodore Adorno, uh, Benjamin's friend and correspondent, that you have to see the negation as a, a determinate negation. Um, it's not a negation of everything. It's not a negation of every category like a general kind of skepticism. That is that that is the neo-Kantian version of nihilism that Rose critiques so well. But uh, instead, this more determinate na- negation is going to... Um, it's not a negation of all standards, but it's a negation of some very particular constellations of, of power and reasoning, like the one uh, that links together ethics as everything and the state's monopoly on legitimate violence. And if that's negated or, the, or that, that, that collusion between law and slavery and its legacies in the United States, when that's negated, then very particular kinds of things um Become possible uh, in the wake of that negation. I don't think that's nihilism at all. I think um, it's a it's a ne- moment of negation that makes possible uh, a new kind of freedom and a new kind of practical reasoning on the other
1: side. Excellent, and I that is really helpful. I thought that was really an interesting part of your book. And and one other uh, very useful thing I think you do here. In this chapter, as you discuss this idea of the great criminal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin gives us, it's only a, a, a little reference uh, to the great criminal. Um, but, you know, as I flesh that out, I, I do think that's that that may be the best way to think about Brown. You know, the, the great criminal is the one who breaks the law Um and and there's a recognition that the breaking of the 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 law that was broken might even be you know a law that has some reasons to stick to it uh the great criminal is still a criminal um but the greatness of the great criminal is that um the the crime reveals the injustice not of a particular law but of an entire social order and i think that's that's what brown does um you wouldn't want to defend, I, I don't want to defend murder, I don't want to justify uh, Brown's actions by making them legal, something like that, um, like those who would see him as a freedom fighter do. What I do want to say, though, is that in his actions, he reveals that deep, deep connection between slavery and the existing law in the United States. Th- this is what I think Melville is getting at, too, when he says, look, the whole, the law hangs from the gallows uh all of the Shenandoah Valley hangs in the gallows with brown a whole social order um is revealed for what it is um and it's the the curtain is pulled back it loses its aura uh, and there's a kind of shattering
1: that happens excellent excellent I I that was a really interesting chapter and you move there from there to this talking again about the you know you were, in chapter three you're talking about the relief of law In chapter four you talk about the higher law and I wonder what that means in terms of of John Brown and the various issues you've been talking about
0: yeah well you know language about the higher law it's a it's a grand American tradition appealing to a higher law um, it's it's there for the Puritans it's there for uh, it's it's there in the Declaration of Independence it it just runs right through and it it gets revved back up uh, in debates around the Fugitive Slave Act um, and becomes um, just a Im- really important currency, uh, intellectual currency for those who are trying to resist the settled law of the land, which established slavery and even said that northerners had to return uh, slaves. So the, this language of the higher law, though, it, it carries forward. Um, so partly I'm wanting to just, just take up that old American trope of the higher law but I'm wanting to do it especially in relation to debates about religion and violence, because the way those debates often play out, well, religion causes violence and, and leads to, because ultimate belief then, or belief in some ultimate good is going to license ultimate violence or violence without limits. And then the higher law um, is the is the means by which this happens. And you, so you see this especially, I think, in denunciations of uh, of Islam as being wedded to a higher law that then is going to license this apocalyptic violence. Um, And that's the way that gets deployed a lot. Well, in this chapter, I want to argue against the idea that the higher law necessarily legitimates violence without end. So I, I do that, first of all, by showing that uh, you know, it's an easy case to make to say people like Quakers, well, they have a higher law, but it leads to pacifism. So, okay, you, that, that's the quick counter. But I think the more difficult case is to show how a very earthy, this worldly pragmatism can also lead to violence that uh, slips the bounds of, um, of what what is normally acceptable. And my, my case here is uh, Sherman's uh, violence especially in the campaign towards and then after Atlanta. Um, and to say, look, Sherman is no abolitionist. Sherman uh, doesn't believe in a, doesn't give us any signs that he believes in a higher law. What he thinks is is important is military necessity. Uh, it's winning. And if if what it takes to win is a total war, or at least a hard war or something close to that, well, Sherman is ready to do it. But here, here's an example, and I think you can po- point to many examples um, you know, throughout history, but Sherman's the one that's relevant here. Uh, for, for a case where violence, in the name of a very disworldly pragmatism, in the name of enforcing the rule of law, this violence goes to, to near total proportions. And it at least overrides the boundaries that have been set up. And it does all that in the name of necessity. And necessity is this very, very pragmatic, seeming, this worldly concept. So, that the first half of this chapter is is just arguing for the ways in which uh, pragmatism or, uh, you know, the this worldly, pragmatism of a certain sort, I should say, and uh, a this worldly ethic can lead to this kind of violence. And here I'm arguing, especially with uh, Andrew DelBanco. Uh, in his book, The Abolitionist Imagination, where he's making that case. So the the second half of the chapter, though, is trying to say, is trying to give a theological account, a Christian theological account, of the higher law uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to violence. Um, and not just that it forbids violence, it's not just a law that, that, that rules that out, but rather a, a concept of the higher law in, in which um, violence would be a, a non sequitur. And I, I work here, especially with Giorgio Agamben and, um, and his reading of Paul, to argue for, you know, to say that the, the higher law, the way to see it is as, a, as a fulfillment of law, and Christians say, you know, a, a messianic fulfillment of law. And that that is not just um, a future that is hoped for or something that would be worked for, because if it's that, well, then you'd, uh, you might take violence in order to achieve it but rather the messianic fulfillment of law is something already accomplished. So it's not in the imperative mood, it's really in the indicative mood. And if it's already accomplished, well, then uh, action might still need to be taken in its wake, but it would not be action that needs to bring in the the reign of God or something like that. And so it's not the kind of action that's going to lead to violence without end. So I tried to give this alternative uh, theological reading of the higher law.
1: Well, excellent. And I, I thought one thing that what really struck me was how you kind of end the, this chapter by talking how, and I'm looking at page 124, you say on the, the very last sentence, Brown bore his most transparent witness to the higher law, not when he sought to enforce it, but when he lived the life it already made possible. And You, you talk about the relationships um, to do that. And I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, and here I have in mind especially the community at North Elba, uh, which I left out of my quick narrative of Brown's life, and that, that was probably too bad. Um, North Elba is a, a, a little community of African Americans and uh, a few white people in the kind of northern Adirondacks, and just this this remarkable Act of living together uh and collaborating pretty deeply to make a living in that hard part of the world um brown's family relocated up there after one of his bankruptcies um and lived you know as neighbors lived in community um with many african american people uh like Lyman Epps, his neighbor who uh sang at his funeral um and to say that kind of, if, you, if you have the right conception of the higher law, then what it does is to shatter that uh, that deep link between the law and slavery and the legacies of slavery that would make that kind of community impossible. Right. But if that law, if that link is shattered, then all kinds of different forms of life become possible. And one of them is the form that Brown enacts at Harper's Ferry. Yeah, it, maybe it leads to that. But another of them is the kind of life that, uh, in his family lived at North Elba. And, um, that he lived when he was on the road. You know, he stayed with, uh, Frederick Douglass, stayed with many African American leaders close with James McCune Smith. It, this powerful witness of friendships and relationships that really, uh, you know, you don't, I don't want to Like some of his biographers say, well, he he really transcended racism. No, he didn't. He was still soaked in racism, um, as as all of us uh, white Americans remain. Um, But but he did have these remarkable, remarkable relationships uh, that I and I think those relationships bear witness to the higher law uh, that I'm trying to describe more clearly with less distortion, maybe
1: uh, than the violence that you see at Harper's Ferry. And the, what I found also was uh, interesting in your book was in chapter five that that he still is connected to the law, in particular uh, in terms of the laws of the United States, and attempts to to bring to get John Brown a pardon. Yeah. And you talk about some of the the issues related to that. Yeah. Uh, and they're quite contentious. So I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that.
0: Sure. Um, ch- chapter five is trying to make a, an argument for pardon as an exception to law or an exception to ethics. Um, So I draw here on Derrida among others. um, But a lot of the cases for Brown that have been made for his pardon, um, they they essentially boil down to saying that he was right. um, And then because he was right, he should be pardoned. David Reynolds makes that case uh, as well as anyone. Um, But I, I I want to, I worry about that. I worry about it because, um, it's it's a pardon that can't really imagine an exception to the law. It can't really imagine uh, forgiveness. So it's a there's an atrophy that's happened there. But it's also then one that's going to legitimate violence um, whenever somebody happens to be right. Uh, so I, I don't think that's a desirable sort of outcome. We we need a stronger notion of pardon. Um, one that isn 't just kind of correcting the mistakes of the past, but one that can declare something wrong and then still forgive it uh, and i I argue in that chapter that for a, a kind of pardon for Brown uh, on those terms um, but once you crack open that sense of pardon, a pardon for an act that is wrong. Um, and especially in the vicinity of the Civil War, well, then it opens up the question of whether or not there should be a pardon for slavery. Um, and I think that question has to be, you know, I, I, when I first realized that as I was thinking through the chapter, I thought, man, yeah, I just want to bury that under the rug. Um, but but I don't think you can. And so I had to think, well, you know, my, my instinct here is that a, a pardon of Brown would be legitimate. A pardon of Brown would totally change the way we tell this story because if, if you put Brown on the same level as Robert E. Lee, which is where I think he should be, um, both uh, you know commit a crime, both pardoned, but then, then are you going to if you really take this notion of grace far, are you going to pardon slavery? Well I don't think there should be a pardon uh, for slavery, and the the main reason I argue for here is that the the federal government has the standing to pardon Brown because brown's crimes were against the state. Um, and so there's something fitting when the state pardons Brown but slavery was not a crime against the state slavery was a crime by the state Uh, and so any pardon of slavery uh, would would really be a kind of self-forgiveness it's what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace and uh, it's no sort of pardon at all I mean I, I don't think slavery should be pardoned because of the magnitude of the crime because of its ongoing nature, you can't pardon something that's still happening in a way, um, but most of all because the state is has been so deeply complicit in it. Uh, so there's the argument for a pardon as an exception to ethics in the case of Brown, um, but but that doesn't open up the door willy-nilly to a uh, pardon for every kind of wrong thing that's been done.
1: Well, one thing I, I thought was also very interesting that you did in this chapter is you broaden this because it's not uh, by asking the question, "Well, why just a pardon for Brown?" Uh, right. it's what about the other guys who were with him?
0: <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, it, I mean, the the gravity uh, the, the gravitational pull in these conversations is always to talk about Brown, and um, that pull uh, exerts too strong a force on the book. If there were one thing I could change, it would be. To go back and really decenter Brown from the narrative more, um, and open it up to all of the raiders, uh, black and white, and I, I that's one of the main arguments I want to make. Right, is that you you wouldn't just pardon Brown as Reynolds has argued; you'd absolutely pardon all of the raiders, um, and that that's an important recognition of the, you know, uh, that it's not just this one guy,
1: and in particular, one white guy. Right, yeah. You contrast him with with poor Shields Green. Yeah, that happens in the last chapter, in chapter six, and chapter oh, six. I'm
0: sorry. Yeah, yeah. But that, uh, and in chapter six, what I'm trying to do is to make a case for um, the a historical consciousness as necessary for practical reasoning. So the kind of ethics that I'm talking about with universalizable principles. Um, It's often it often proceeds almost entirely a historically but if you open up the possibility of an exception and here I'm following especially uh, Raymond voice if you open up that possibility then you are necessarily engaged in, in you know you're engaged in if not empirical you're engaged in at least thinking about the world as it is you're engaged in history you're engaged in sociology because you're engaged in the study of particularities. Um, I think ethics needs a lot more of that, and not just at the level of applying laws to cases, but at the level of deliberating about norms. Um, so I'm trying to make a case for uh, thinking about history, and in particular for giving a, a, a you know, the shape of historical narratives. That that's going to matter for the way you think uh, morally. And so I, I try to think about um, the different stories that have been told about Brown, the narratives into which he's been inserted. And, um, you know, there's the ones in which he's just the second coming of Christ. That's what uh, Thoreau gives us in his most abelian moments, um, where it is the realization, the embodiment of a perfect kind of good. Uh, I don't think you can you can say that uh not not only because of the mixed nature of brown's own life but also because the, there's no final deliverance that's accomplished here so to the uh you know brown himself late in life he came to think of himself as part of the samson story in the bible where yeah he uh you know he commits his sin and he he has a tactical error of judgment let's delilah cut his hair he stays too long but In the end, he brings down the temple uh, of his enemies. On his own head, he dies, but they die too. Um, I think that's the way he's thinking about himself at his death. But again, there you could say that depends on a sort of final judgment that Brown doesn't inaugurate. Um, And then later thinkers, especially after the terrible bloodshed of the Civil War, come to take up Brown's sense of... um, kind of blood atonement for sin or a renewal of the nation uh, through a a cleansing of it from its founding sin of slavery, that that's what the Civil War is. And So you have some very sober people uh, like Horace Bushnell and respected folks like Harriet Beecher Stowe who advanced this case very literally, but it's still there, I think, in muted forms and more secularized forms in all kinds of writing about or invocations of the Civil War today where people describe it as exactly that costly purging of the national sin. But, but again, I my, my strongest argument back to that would be that that's not a good reading of history because it didn't work. Uh, we still have these legacies of slavery at work, and you see those legacies in Ferguson, you see them in Charleston, you see them everywhere in our society. So I, I want to argue for a different way to think about brown um, and and I argue that Shields Green, who was one of his um, partners in in the raid, uh, forces us to this because you know John Brown's body after he's hanged, his, his body is neatly dressed, it's, um, it gets a hero's parade all the way north um, from Virginia and is buried with some ceremony and shield's green an african american raider who joined brown um, was mocked in the press was just treated as you know barely human in the accounts as opposed to the way that, that brown was treated uh and then upon his death his body is seized and in in the name of quote unquote medical research and and really desecrated and dismembered we, we don't know where his body is today and his name is is too forgotten. Um, so you can't assimilate Shields Green's story to any of those um, easy narratives about a, a triumph or a purging of sin. And the, the tendency is to read Shields Green's body through John Brown so well, you know, because Brown's was treated so well. we. we could, but, but I want to do just the opposite. I want to read John Brown's body, the meaning of that death, through Shields Green's body and just the sign of, all that is left unfinished. And and there I think the great, great reader of Brown's life is W. B. Du Bois. Uh his, his biography of Brown ends with that profound sense that Brown is a judgment, um,
1: but it is a judgment that is
0: not yet uh fully accomplished, uh a judgment that is waited for. And uh
1: and I think that's right.
0: So that's an argument about uh it's an argument about the narrative that makes the right sense of John Brown's body um it's an it's an argument then about the narrative in which the ethics uh ethical deliberation would take would take place so it's not a universalizable principle that's primarily at work there but it's a reading of history and and those readings, are, I want to argue, are inevitably theological in one way or another. But with that, Shields Green, uh, I mean, I still, uh Shields Green keeps me up at night. I think about him a lot. And I wanted to end the book with his story because just getting people to think more about Green is uh one of the, would be for me one of the happiest, one of the best outcomes of the book. But if you're thinking about Shields Green, you can't tell any of those narratives of uh, national redemption that you get around Brown.
1: So uh, one thing also I I thought was very interesting was you named your concluding chapter Not Yet the End. And uh, if we go back to page 39 of your book in that first chapter, you talk about how your book is really meant as a kind of hope for redemption. So I wonder if, if you could just talk about what is your hope and what do you mean here by by redemption
0: right well um, the not yet the end is a it's it's an adaptation of the end of Du Bois's biography of Brown where uh, Du Bois quotes Brown to finish his book uh, and you know Brown uh, quotes Brown calling out to all Southerners saying you you know you better get ready for a judgment on this slavery business because the end of this um, the end of this is not yet it's worth reading in full it's just it's just an amazing passage so this is the ending of, of Du Bois's biography you had better all you people of the south prepare yourselves for a settlement of this question it's Brown's words quoted through Du Bois it must come up for settlement sooner than you are prepared for it and the sooner you commence that preparation the better for you you may dispose of me very easily and I'm nearly disposed of now but this question is still to be settled. This Negro question, I mean. The end of this is not yet. The end of this is not yet. This is a, a narrative. Du Bois is wanting to say the narrative of Brown's life doesn't have its ending yet. Um, it doesn't have the the moment where you can call it an ending and then make sense of everything going back. That ending is not yet. That, that sense of an ending that is not yet, uh, to me, that is closely akin to the notion of divine violence that I've been trying to make. When 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 you've got the ending, um and you can work back and everything makes sense after that moment of of uh redemption or that moment when uh hope and history rhyme in Seamus Heaney's phrase. When when you've got that moment then everything going back assumes the what Benjamin calls a mythological cast. That's what can justify the mythological violence. But this it's not yet. Um, this this ending that has not yet come, uh, that cracks history open in a different kind of way and demands a different kind of response.
1: Excellent. Well, this was to me, I was really a fascinating book. I hope that our, our listeners, um, we've been able to, to talk about it, but with the theoretical richness of it, uh, we can't do it justice in just a, a little bit over an hour. So I hope our listeners will go out and buy it and have a look at it. And I apologize for've taking a lot a lot of your time, but I would like to ask our final traditional question uh, what are you working on now
0: i well first, thanks to you for all this time I know it has been a, a long time, and I'm grateful to you and anybody who's made it to the end of
1: <laughs> listening
0: to all this uh but so thank you and the and thanks too, for asking about what's next i'm I'm working right now on uh a big project that's trying to coordinate um a lot of different voices from some very different kinds of traditions to think together about the purposes of theological education. Um, I, you know, I think it, it's no secret that many of the traditional seminaries and theological schools, both those that are freestanding and those affiliated with universities, uh, are looking at declining enrollments and um, some budgetary crises. And that's true, especially of those affiliated with mainline Protestant uh, traditions, so um, new forms that are emerging all over the place, and uh, to begin to so this project that I'm doing is funded by the Lilly Endowment is um, convening people from really different backgrounds to talk about what all this is for. And on the one hand, it seems totally different from Weird John Brown. On the other hand, I feel like it's pretty continuous with um, with this longer term project of my, my first, of thinking about these artifacts, these cultural formations most associated with uh, an established mainline Protestantism in the U.S. at, at the moment of their disestablishment. Um, so in my first book, it's about a rhetorical form, a certain kind of preaching. This is about uh, social ethics, which I think of as a characteristic form and what that looks like. With the disestablishment, the, this uh, breaking up of the cultural alignment of uh, mainline Protestantism and the state, and then uh, a breaking up of the professional model of theological education. Um, and so in all of these, I'm trying not to tell a narrative of progress for sure, and also not a narrative of decline, but um, one in which,
1: uh,
0: as we were just talking about, the end of this story is not yet.
1: Well, excellent. Well, uh, good luck to the project. Hope that it will will meet some success in, in coming up with these, these alternative, alternative models, uh, because we need those if we want people to keep writing books like yours. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, thanks, Frank, and thanks for your thoughtful interview. I appreciate your questions, and I just really appreciate your taking time to think through this with me.
1: This has been New Books in Christian Studies. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll come back and listen again soon.